Section 11 of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. John, Volume 2, by J.C. Ryle. Chapter 8, verses 48 to 59. Blasphemous language addressed to our Lord, encouragement to believers, Abraham's knowledge of Christ, Christ's preexistence. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. John, chapter 8, verses 48 to 59. Then answered the Jews, and said unto him, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan, and hast a devil? Jesus answered, I have not a devil. But I honor my father, and ye do dishonor me. And I seek not mine own glory. There is one that seeketh and judgeth. Verily, verily, I say unto you, If a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. Then said the Jews unto him, Now we know that thou hast a devil. Abraham is dead, and the prophets, and thou sayest, If a man keep my saying, he shall never taste of death. Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead? And the prophets are dead. Whom makest thou thyself? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father that honoreth me, of whom ye say that he is your God. Yet ye have not known him, but I know him, and if I should say, I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. But I know him, and keep his saying. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself, and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. We should observe first, in this passage, what blasphemous and slanderous language was addressed to our Lord by his enemies. We read that the Jews said unto him, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan, and hast a devil? Silenced in argument, these wicked men resorted to personal abuse. To lose temper and call names is a common sign of a defeated cause. Nicknames, insulting epithets, and violent language are favorite weapons with the devil. When other means of carrying on his warfare fail, he stirs up his servants to smite with the tongue. Grievous indeed are the sufferings which the saints of God have had to endure from the tongue in every age. Their characters have been slandered, evil reports have been circulated about them, Lying stories have been diligently invented and greedily swallowed about their conduct. No wonder that David said, Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips, and from a deceitful tongue. Psalm 120, verse 2. The true Christian in the present day must never be surprised to find that he has constant trials to endure from this quarter. Human nature never changes. So long as he serves the world and walks in the broad way, little, perhaps, will be said against him. Once let him take up the cross and follow Christ, and there is no lie too monstrous and no story too absurd for some to tell against him and for others to believe. But let him take comfort in the thought that he is only drinking the cup which his blessed master drank before him. The lies of his enemies do him no injury in heaven, whatever they may on earth. Let him bear them patiently and not fret or lose his temper. When Christ was reviled, he reviled not again. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. Let the Christian do likewise. 
We should observe, secondly, what glorious encouragement our Lord holds out to his believing people. We read that he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, If a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. Of course these words do not mean that true Christians shall never die. On the contrary, we all know that they must go down to the grave and cross the river just like others. But the words do mean that they shall not be hurt by the second death, that final ruin of the whole man in hell, of which the first death is only a faint type or figure. Revelation chapter 21 verse 8. And they do mean that the sting of the first death shall be removed from the true Christian. His flesh may fail, and his bones may be racked with strong pain, but the bitter sense of unpardoned sins shall not crush him down. This is the worst part of death, and in this he shall have the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57. This blessed promise, we must not forget to notice, is the peculiar property of the man who keeps Christ's sayings. That expression, it is clear, can never be applied to the mere outward professing Christian, who neither knows nor cares anything about the gospel. It belongs to him who receives into his heart and obeys in his life the message which the Lord Jesus brought from heaven. It belongs, in short, to those who are Christians, not in name and form only, but in deed and in truth. It is written, He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Revelation chapter 2, verse 11. We should observe, thirdly, in this passage, what clear knowledge of Christ Abraham possessed. We read that our Lord said to the Jews, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. When our Lord used these remarkable words, Abraham had been dead and buried at least 1850 years. And yet he is said to have seen our Lord's day. How wonderful that sounds! Yet it was quite true. Not only did Abraham see our Lord and talk to him when he appeared unto him in the plains of Mamre, the night before Sodom was destroyed, Genesis chapter 18, verse 1, but by faith he looked forward to the day of our Lord's incarnation yet to come, and as he looked he was glad. That he saw many things, through a glass darkly, we need not doubt. That he could have explained fully the whole manner and circumstances of our Lord's sacrifice on Calvary, we are not obliged to suppose. But we need not shrink from believing that he saw in the far distance a Redeemer, whose advent would finally make all the earth rejoice, and as he saw it, he was glad. The plain truth is that we are too apt to forget that there never was but one way of salvation, one Savior, and one hope for sinners, and that Abraham and all the Old Testament saints looked to the same Christ that we look to ourselves. We shall do well to call to mind the seventh article of the Church of England, the Old Testament is not contrary to the New, for both in the Old and New Testament everlasting life is offered through Christ, who is the only mediator between God and man, being both God and man. Wherefore, they are not to be heard who feign that the Old Fathers did look only for transitory promises. This is truth that we must never forget in reading the Old Testament. This is sound speech that cannot be condemned. We should observe, lastly, in this prophecy, how distinctly our Lord declares his own pre-existence. We read that he said to the Jews, Before Abraham was, I am. Without a controversy, these remarkable words are great deep. They contain things which we have no eyes to see through or mind to fathom. 
But if language means anything, they teach us that our Lord Jesus Christ existed long before he came into the world. Before the days of Abraham, he was. Before man was created, he was. In short, they teach us that the Lord Jesus was no mere man like Moses or David. He was one whose goings forth were from everlasting, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Very and eternal God. Deep as these words are, they are full of practical comfort. They show us the length and breadth and depth and height of that great foundation on which sinners are invited to rest their souls. He to whom the gospel bids us come with our sins and believe for pardon and peace is no mere man. He is nothing less than very God and therefore able to save to the uttermost all who come to him. Then let us begin coming to him with confidence. Let us continue leaning on him without fear. The Lord Jesus Christ is the true God, and our eternal life is secure. Notes, John chapter 8, verses 48 to 59. Verse 48. Then answered the Jews, Samaritan, devil. This verse seems to contain nothing but personal abuse and blasphemous slander. Unable to answer our Lord's arguments, the unbelieving Jews lost their temper and resorted to the last weapon of a disputant, senseless invective and calling of names. The extent to which calling names is carried out by Oriental people, even in the present day, is something far greater than in this country we can imagine. When the Jews called our Lord a Samaritan, they meant much the same as saying that he was no true Jew and little better than a heathen. The Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. John chapter 4 verse 9. When they said, Thou hast a devil, I think it meant rather more than thou art mad, as in John chapter 7, verse 20, if we observe the following verse. It probably implied, Thou actest and speakest under the influence of the devil. The power thou hast is from Satan, and not from God. Let us learn here how little cause Christians have to be surprised if hard names and insulting epithets are applied to them. It is only what was done to their master, and is no ground for discouragement in doing God's work. Verse 49. Jesus answered, I have not a devil, etc. Our Lord's answer to the coarse invective of his enemies amounts to this. In saying that I have a devil, you say that which is not true. I am simply honoring my Father in heaven by delivering his message to men, and you by your violent language are dishonoring me, and in effect dishonoring and insulting my Father. Your insults do not strike me only, but my Father also. Let us note our Lord's calmness and equanimity under insult, a solemn denial of the blasphemous charge laid against him, and an equally solemn reminder that he was honoring the God whom they themselves professed to worship are the only reply he condescends to make. Verse 50. And I seek not mine own glory. This sentence seems to arise out of the last verse. Ye dishonor me, but you do not move or hurt me, for I did not come to seek my own glory, but the glory of him that sent me. I receive not honor from men. See John chapter 7 verse 18 and chapter 5 verse 41. Here, as elsewhere, our Lord points to the great principle that a true messenger from heaven will never seek his own glory, but the master's. There is one that seeketh and judgeth. There is a very solemn warning in these words, they mean, there is one, however, even my Father in heaven, who does seek and desire my glory, and not only seeks, but judges the conduct of all who dishonor me with deep displeasure, and will punish it at the last day. 
There is comfort here for all Christ's members as well as for their head. Though they may not think of it, there is one in heaven who cares deeply for them, sees all they go through, and will one day plead their cause. The latent thought seems to be the same as in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 8. He that is higher than the highest regardeth. A believer may cheer himself with the thought, There is one that judgeth, there is one that sees all, that cares for me, and will set all right at the last day. Euthymius remarks on this verse that we should not heed things said against ourselves, but should vindicate the honor of God if things are said against God. Verse 51. Verily, if a man keep my saying, never see death. The mighty promise contained in this verse seems intended to wind up the whole conversation. All that our Lord has said had produced no effect. He therefore closes his teaching for the present by one of those mighty sayings which tower above everything near them, and of which St. John's Gospel contains so many. Whether you will hear or not, whether you choose to know me or not, I solemnly tell you that if any man receives, believes, and keeps my doctrine, he shall never see death. Despised and rejected as I am by you, life or death, heaven or hell, blessing or cursing, depend and hinge on accepting the message I proclaim to you. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It is like Moses taking leave of Israel and saying, I call heaven and earth to record against you that I have set before you life and death. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 and 19. Just so, our Lord seems to say, I tell you once more, for the last time, that to keep my saying is the way to escape death. The expression is parallel to the one our Lord uses in the synagogue of Capernaum. There he says, He that believeth in me hath everlasting life. Here it is, shall never see death. John chapter 6, verse 47. We should notice here, as elsewhere, that when our Lord uses the expression, Verily, verily, I say unto you, which is familiar to all careful readers of St. John's Gospel, he is always about to say something of peculiar gravity and solemnity. See John chapter 1, verse 51, chapter 3, verses 3, 5, and 11, chapter 5, verses 19, 24, and 25, chapter 6, verses 26, 32, 47, and 53, chapter 8, verses 34, 51, and 58, chapter 10, verses 1 and 7, chapter 12, verse 24, chapter 13, verses 16, 20, 21, and 38, chapter 14, verse 12, chapter 16, verses 20 and 23, chapter 21, verse 18. The expression, keep my saying, means receive into his heart, believe, embrace, obey, and hold fast the doctrine or message which I am commissioned to teach. The phrase, my saying, means much more than the words I am speaking at this moment. It is rather the whole doctrine of my gospel. The expression, never see death, cannot be taken literally. Our Lord did not mean that his disciples would not die and be buried like other children of Adam. We know that they did die. The meaning is probably threefold. One, he shall be completely delivered from that spiritual death of condemnation under which all mankind are born. His soul is alive and can die no more. Two, he shall be delivered from the sting of bodily death. His flesh and bones may sink under disease and be laid in the grave, but the worst part of death shall not be able to touch him and the grave itself shall give him up one day. 3. He shall be delivered entirely from the second death, even eternal punishment in hell. Over him the second death shall have no power. 
The width and greatness of this promise are very remarkable. Ever since the day of Adam's fall, death has been man's peculiar enemy. Man has found the truth of the sentence, In the day thou eatest, thou shalt surely die. Genesis chapter 2, verse 27. But our Lord boldly and openly proclaims that in keeping his saying there is complete deliverance from death. In fact, he proclaims himself the one greater than death. None could say this but a Redeemer who was very God. Augustine says, The death from which our Lord came to deliver us was the second death, eternal death, the death of hell, the death of damnation, with the devil and his angels. That is indeed death, for this death of ours is only a migration. What is it but a putting off a heavy load, provided there be not another load carried, by which the man shall be cast headlong into hell? This is the death of which the Lord says, He shall not see death. Let us note the breadth and fullness of this promise. It is for anyone who keeps Christ's sayings, If a man, or rather it should be rendered, If any man, etc. Let us beware of putting a meaning on the promise which it was not intended to convey. The idea of some, that it means, believers shall be so completely delivered from death that they shall neither feel bodily pain nor mental conflict, is one that cannot be supported. It is not borne out by other passages of Scripture, and, as a matter of fact, it is contradicted by experience. The gospel delivers believers from that fear of death, which unbelievers feel, no doubt. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15. But we have no right to expect believers to have no bodily conflict, no convulsion, no struggle, and no suffering. Flesh and blood must and will feel. I groan, said the holy Baxter on his deathbed, but I do not grumble. Death is a serious thing, even though the sting is taken away. Parkhurst thinks the expression here is like Luke chapter 2, verse 26, where it is said of Simeon that he should not see death. But the Greek for see is there a different word, and the phrase there seems to mean nothing more than die, which does not come up to the full promise here. He also quotes Psalms 49, verse 9, and 89, verse 49, but neither of these places seem parallel. The Greek word rendered see is so peculiar that one might almost think the phrase meant he shall not gaze upon and behold death forever to all eternity as the wicked shall. But I prefer the threefold sense already given. Verse 52. Then said the Jews, etc. The argument of the Jews in this verse seems to be as follows. We know now by thine own words that thou art mad and hast a devil. Our great father Abraham and the prophets, holy and good as they all were, are all dead, and yet thou presumest to say that, if a man keep thy saying, he will never die. In short, thou makest thyself greater than Abraham, for Abraham could not escape death, while keeping thy saying enables a man to escape death. To talk in this way is a plain proof that thou art mad. The phrase, to have a devil in this place, can hardly mean anything but to be mad or crazy. The Jews, it will be observed, do not quote our Lord's words correctly. He had said, shall never see death. They report him as saying, shall never taste of death. Whether this was a willful perversion of his words is rather difficult to decide. Some think that the Jews intentionally exaggerated the promise and put taste for see in order to magnify the offense our Lord had committed. Others think that the difference means nothing and that it only shows how thoroughly the Jews misunderstood our Lord and thought that he referred to nothing but bodily death. 
Here, as elsewhere, we may remark how ready the Jews were to pervert and warp our Lord's meaning, and to put a carnal and gross sense on spiritual language. Verse 53. Art thou greater, etc. The question in this verse shows that our Lord had again succeeded in arousing the curiosity of the Jews, and strained them to inquire about his nature in person. Who art thou, that talkest in this way? Whom dost thou make thyself? To say that those who keep thy saying shall never die is to make thyself superior to Abraham and the prophets who are all dead. Who and what art thou? Art thou really someone greater than Abraham? Chrysostom observes that the question of the Jews reminds us of the Samaritan woman's question, Art thou greater than our father Jacob? John chapter 4, verse 12. Verse 54. If I honor myself, nothing, etc. Our Lord's meaning in this verse seems to be as follows. If at any time I take to myself and claim honor, such honor would be worthless. He who puts honor on me and commissions me to say that keeping my sayings shall deliver a man from death is my Father in heaven, that very being whom you profess to call your God. It is your own God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who has put such honor on me, that life or death turn on keeping my sayings and believing on me. Here, as elsewhere, we should mark the carefulness with which our Lord disclaims all self-exaltation and desire for glory and honor from man. If, in claiming for himself to hold the keys of life and death, he seems to claim honor, he carefully reminds the Jews that it is an honor put on him by the Father in heaven, even by their own God. He desired no honor independent of him, or in rivalry to him. When our Lord says, My Father honoreth me, the expression must include all the works and signs and miracles which the Father gave him to do, as well as the words which he gave him to speak. John chapter 5, verse 36, and chapter 14, verses 10 and 11. Verse 55. Yet ye have not known him, etc. The meaning of this verse seems to be as follows. Although you say of my Father in heaven that he is your God, you do not really know him, and are plainly ignorant of his character, his will, and his purposes. Professing to know him, in works you deny him. But I, on the contrary, know him perfectly, for I am indeed one with him from all eternity, and came forth from him. So perfectly do I know him, that I should be a liar and a child of the devil like yourselves, if I said I did not know him. But I repeat that I know him perfectly, and in all my words and works here on earth I carefully keep his sayings and observe the commission he gave me. There is undeniably a great peculiarity in the language of this verse, but it is probably a Hebrew mode of putting in strong contrast the Jews throw ignorance of God, notwithstanding their high profession of being his chosen people, and our Lord's perfect knowledge of God, notwithstanding the repeated assertions that he had a devil, was a Samaritan, and was consequently an enemy to the God of Israel. The phrase, I should be a liar, like yourselves, if I said I did not know the Father, was just the phrase to convey the strongest idea to the Jews' minds of our Lord's knowledge. In arguing with some men, nothing but the strongest language and the most paradoxical expressions have any effect. Even God himself thinks it good to make such an assertion as, I swear by myself, and, as I live, in order to command attention. Jeremiah chapter 22 verse 5, Hebrews chapter 6 verse 13, Ezekiel chapter 33 verse 11. Those who blame ministers and preachers for using strong language and say that they should never use any but gentle, tame, and mild phrases 
can hardly have studied human nature or the style of Scripture with thorough attention. Verse 56. Your father Abraham, etc. Our Lord, in this verse, takes up the question of the Jews as to his being greater than Abraham, and boldly gives an answer. You ask me whether I am greater than Abraham. I tell you in reply that I am he whose coming and whose day of glory Abraham rejoiced to think he should see. Moreover, by faith he even saw it, and when he saw it, he was glad. The precise meaning of the words of this verse is rather difficult to discover, though the general idea of it is plain and unmistakable. It is clear that our Lord implies that he is the promised Messiah, the seed of Abraham, in whom all the generations of the earth should be blessed, and of whom, when Abraham first heard, he laughed for joy. Genesis chapter 17, verse 17. A. Some think, as most of the fathers and reformers, that it means, Abraham rejoiced in the prospect of seeing, at some future time, my day, the day of Messiah, and by faith he did see it afar off. B. Some think, as Maltinatus, Lamp, Steer, and Bloomfield, that it means, Abraham rejoiced when he was told that he should see my day, and he actually has seen it in paradise, and has been gladdened there in the separate state by the sight. C. Some think, as Brown, Olshausen, Alfred, Webster, and Hengstenberg, that it means, Abraham's great desire and joyful expectation was to see my day, and he actually saw me when I appeared to him and talked with him on earth. Of these three views, the first appears to me the most probable, and most in keeping with the history of Abraham in Genesis. It should be carefully observed that our Lord does not say that Abraham saw me, but that he saw my day. The cause of Abraham's joy seems to have been that there was to be of his seed a Messiah, a Savior, and that he should see his day, the day of the Lord, the triumphant day of Messiah's complete victory and restitution of all things. This day he even saw by faith afar off and was glad at the sight. Our Lord's object does not seem to be to tell the Jews that Abraham had seen him, but that he was the seed, the Messiah, who was promised to their father Abraham. The Jews had asked whether he was greater than Abraham. Yes, he replies, I am. I am that very Messiah whose day Abraham rejoiced to hear of and saw afar off by faith. If you were like Abraham, you would rejoice to see me. Chrysostom and Euthymius think that my day in this verse means the day of the crucifixion, which Abraham foreshowed typically by offering the ram in Isaac's place. This, however, seems a very cramped and limited view. Rupertus thinks that Abraham saw the day of Christ when he entertained the three angels who came to him. Augustine thinks it may refer to both the advents of Christ, first in humiliation and second in glory. Verse 57. Then said the Jews, etc., it is plain that the Jews here put a wrong meaning on our Lord's words, and suppose him to say that Abraham had seen him, and he had seen Abraham. Yet our Lord had only said, Abraham saw my day. It is another instance of their readiness to pervert his words. When the Jews said, Thou art not yet fifty years old, I believe they only meant, Thou art not yet a middle-aged man. Fifty years old was the turning point in life at which the Levites and priests were excused from further active service in the tabernacle. Numbers chapter 4, verse 3. I fancy the reference is to this. Our Lord was at this time about 33 years old, or at most 34. The notion of Irenaeus and Paplus 
that he really was fifty before he was crucified is utterly without warrant and absurd. Some think that our Lord's countenance was so marred and aged by sorrow and care that he looked much older than he really was, and that hence the Jews supposed him to be nearly fifty, but I prefer the former view. Euthymius thinks that the Jews thought our Lord was fifty years old on account of his great wisdom and experience. This, however, seems a weak and untenable view. Verse 58. Jesus said, Before Abraham was, I am. This famous verse, I believe, can only receive one honest interpretation. It is a distinct assertion of our Lord's eternity, his existence before all creation. I solemnly declare unto you that before Abraham was and existed, I was, the great I am, the same yesterday, today, and forever, the eternal God. All attempts to evade this explanation appear to me so preposterous that it is a waste of time to notice them. The man who can think the words only mean, I am he who was promised to Adam before Abraham was born, seems past the reach of reasoning. The name, I am, we must remember, is the very name by which God revealed himself to the Jews when he sent Moses to them. Say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me. Exodus chapter 3 verse 14. Let us carefully note what a strong proof we have here of the pre-existence and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. He applies to himself the very name by which God made himself known when he undertook to redeem Israel. It was, I am, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. It was, I am, who died for us upon the cross. The amazing strength of the foundation of a sinner's hope appears here. Believing on Jesus, we rest on divinity, on one who is God as well as man. There is a difference in the Greek verbs here employed, which we should carefully notice. The Greek for was is quite different from the Greek for am. It is as if our Lord said, Before Abraham was born, I have an existence individual and eternal. Chrysostom observes, He said not before Abraham was, I was, but I am. As the Father useth this expression, I am, so also doth Christ, for it signifieth continuous being, irrespective of all time. On which account the expression seemed to the Jews blasphemous. Augustine says, In these words acknowledge the Creator and discern the creature. He that spake was made of the seed of Abraham, and that Abraham might be, he was before Abraham. Gregory remarks, Divinity has no past or future, but always the present, and therefore Jesus does not say before Abraham was, I was, but I am. Verse 59, Then they took up stones to cast him. It is clear that the Jews, at any rate, had no doubt what our Lord meant in the preceding verse, whatever modern Socinians may think. They saw and knew at once that he who spoke to them boldly claimed to be Jehovah, and one far greater than Abraham, being very God. This they did not believe, and therefore regarded him as a blasphemer who ought at once to be stoned. In their rage and fury, they immediately took up stones, which were probably lying about on account of repairs of the temple, in order to stone him. The whole proceeding appears to have been a tumultuous and disorderly one, not regularly conducted, but sudden and unauthorized, like the stoning of Stephen afterwards. Acts chapter 7, verse 58. But Jesus hid himself, etc., I think this withdrawal can only be regarded as miraculous. The Greek word rendered hid himself is literally was hid. 
it seems most improbable that our Lord could pass by and go through the midst of an angry crowd whose eyes had for a long time been fixed and concentrated on him without being seen and stopped, unless there was a miraculous interposition. I believe that the eyes of his enemies were hidden, and that they did not know him for a season, or that by his own almighty power he rendered himself temporarily invisible. It is only what he did at Nazareth on a similar occasion, Luke chapter 4, verse 30. And if we once concede that our Lord could work miracles at his will, there seems no reason to suppose that he could not work one on this occasion. Let us note that our Lord's enemies could do nothing to him until his hour was come for suffering. When he was at last taken prisoner, brought before Pilate, and crucified, it was not because he could not escape, but because he would not. What he did here he might have done there. Let us note that it is not always the path of duty and of real obedience to God's will to sit still and submit to suffering and death. It may be the will of God that we should flee to some other city and avoid death. Matthew chapter 10, verse 23. To court martyrdom and throw away life when it might be saved is not always the duty of a servant of Christ. Some of the martyrs of the primitive church appear to have forgotten this. Augustine says, Jesus did not hide himself in a corner of the temple as if he were afraid, or take refuge in a house, or run behind a wall or a pillar. But by his heavenly power he made himself invisible to his enemies, and went through the midst of them. The argument of Maldonatus that this verse proves the possibility of Christ being corporally present in the Lord's Supper in the bread is so preposterous that it requires no refutation. There is no positive proof that our Lord was actually invisible here. It is quite possible that the eyes of his enemies were holden that they could not know him. Luke chapter 14, verse 16. If he was invisible, Maldonatus proves too much. The bread in the Lord's Supper is seen, and after consecration the Roman Catholic says its substance is changed, but it is not invisible. In leaving this remarkable chapter, we should not fail to notice the difficulties under which our Lord's public ministry was carried on. Ten times between the twelfth verse and the fifty-ninth, we find his enemies interrupting, contradicting, or reviling him. Our master's calm dignity and perfect meekness under all this contradiction of sinners ought to be a never-forgotten example to his disciples. It is a wise remark of Pascal that our Lord's enemies, by their incessant caviling and interruption, both here and elsewhere, have supplied us unintentionally with a strong proof of the truth of his teaching. If our Lord's doctrines had only been delivered privately to a prejudiced audience of kind and loving disciples, they would not come down to us with the same weight that they do now. But they were often proclaimed in the midst of bitter enemies, learned scribes and Pharisees, who were ready to detect any flaw or defect in his reasoning. That the enemies of Christ could never answer or silence him is a strong evidence that his doctrine was God's own truth. It was from heaven and not from men. End of section 11.